is Night Town. Nor are we out of it. Town, as seen in the jazz idiom of his sweet Dubliners by Noel Keelan. Night town, day town, all around the town. This is where the Joyce men have been this last week and through tomorrow, tomorrow, Bloomsday, the 16th of June, the anniversary of the day of the wanderings of Ulysses in his Dublin representation. The Joyceans have descended on Dublin for the second International James Joyce Symposium, and rightly so. For with apologies to Zurich, Paris, Cork, and any other place you might think of, Joyce is, as Roger McHugh reminds us, essentially a Dubliner, a Dublin man. Um, I know that Miles Nicoplin used to find a Dubliner as a, a man who is, has a pint in front of him and... You suddenly look around and the Dublin man is gone and the pint has also gone. You just see the froth settling into the bottom of the, of the glass. You haven't, in fact, seen him drinking it. On the other hand, the cork man has defined the Dublin man as one who looks on a man drowning in the Liffey with unconcern. And then when a cork man dives in to save them, shrugs his shoulders and walks away muttering bloody show-off. But uh, for me, Joyce is always a Dubliner. I don't think uh, so much on account of uh, the book Dubliners, which I must say, if read in sequence, I find uh, rather monotonous in its uh, indication of paralysis. After all, paralysis is not, is not the most interesting condition of the human subject. Uh, but I can never open Ulysses without turning to the citizen episode told by the anonymous, bitter-tongued Thersites of a Dubliner, the anonymous one who sees everybody uh, as something to be in the most exaggerated way depreciated and pulled down. That is, in a way, a Dublin trait, and most of us had rubbed up against it, I suppose, uh, on our way through Dublin life, and it's perhaps it's done us some good because it's, it's saved us from too many social pretensions. Um, I think, of course, that uh, the difference between the men who comes from outside Dublin, or from outside this country, uh, to consider Joyce and the man who sees him, as it were, from the inside without have been, having been prejudiced against him uh, in youth uh, by some educator, perhaps. Uh, I think the difference is that uh, the outside man tends to come expecting that to meet the Dublin of 1904. Now, there's a heck of a lot uh, more in the Dublin of uh, 1969 than there was in the Dublin of 1904. I think Joyce himself maintained that the Dublin of 1904 could come back that we'd be uh, ill at ease with it. The gestures, the pace of life, the costumes, everything would be very different, and uh, we might find it uh, perhaps a much less engaging place than many people fancy it. Uh, but 
on the other hand, I suppose the Dublin of 19, 1969, uh, in its neglect of the, the older Dublin and the way it's pulling some of it down, is in many ways uh, inferior. Well, indeed, uh, I know all that has to come down, they say. Uh, vast structures going up and coming down. Uh, the Joycemen have built a vast structure around the Joyce structure. Uh, does this sort of meeting to you uh, add to the Dublin man's appreciation of Joyce? Well, it sometimes does, because uh, the prophet is very respected in his own country, and sometimes the person who doesn't know anything about Joyce, even if, if it's only because he sees so many foreigners interested in him, will, will turn to you, let's say, and perhaps then discover it for himself. But uh, while I concede that it's a very good thing to have so many scholars and writers in Dublin to doing uh, an Irish writer's such honour, um, I think there are certain snags about uh, this kind of symposium. Uh, first of all, uh, from my own experience in chairing one meeting and then listening to some other papers, I think the quality of paper is very uneven. Only about a third of them are of any critical or scholarly value. I think this arises because many foreign scholars, particularly Americans, can't get here unless they're subsidized by the universities. So they have to be uh, reading a paper or contributing to a panel discussion before they will get a grant. Now the result is we've had we are, are having in process of having some 37 papers by 37 different people and 35 participants speaking in panel discussions all in six days. The seventh day uh, being Bloomsday is a day of rest, at any rate largely a day of rest from papers but devoted mainly to walks and tours. I think the number of papers should be cut down drastically and only those of first quality should be chosen and that they should be published. Well, that lays it on the line, as they say. Professor McHugh is a sharp critic, but a sympathetic one. It must be admitted, as he hinted, that we have still among us, though in decreasing numbers, uh, some who feel that uh, Joyce, as a man who wrote dirty, blasphemous books, shouldn't be the subject of a symposium at all in this fair city. Um... Perhaps it was to reassure these that the first speaker in the first general session of the symposium was an American Jesuit with an Irish name, uh, Father Robert Boyle of Marquette University in Milwaukee, whose subject was Joyce's use of the image of the priesthood. And Father Boyle uh, regards the use of this image as quite central to Joyce's work. Yes, I think that's quite clear. And uh, that in Joyce's work, the image of the priest is one that he keeps on tap for use whenever it uh, suits his purposes and his characters. He doesn't make a scheme of it, but he uh, has it around, particularly when he talks about the role of the artist. He has Stephen saying in Portrait of the Artist that he himself will be the true priest, the priest of the eternal imagination, transmuting the daily bread of experience into the living, into the Eucharist of ever-living life. Now, my uh, interest in talking about it, it's been greatly discussed by Joyce critics, 
But mostly, uh, Joyce critics have been interested in the negative side of the image, that is, in Joyce's uh, fear of the priesthood, his dislike of the, uh, what he thought to be the simony power of the priesthood abused. But it's quite important to stress the positive side of the image, that is, that he is anxious to exalt the role of the artist. So that, and in this very image, it's quite evident that Joyce is stressing the life-giving aspect of the priesthood, the bringing of God to man in the Eucharist, and using this to his own purposes. But Joyce had a deep and Catholic grasp of the meaning of this particular image, as uh, a, a number of, of uh, critics have either failed to realize or not stressed enough. Um, so anyway, that was uh, the reason I took this up, was to show how, through Joyce's work, he stresses also this positive side of the image of the priesthood, the life-giving quality of the Eucharist, which he applies now to the artist and his art product. Uh, do you think that much of this is due to his own life, to his uh, own first vocation, whether real or imagined, mm -hmm. to holy orders? I do, yes. I think to grasp this, Joyce's use of this image is very important to uh, see how he learned about the priesthood, how, how he grew up with the with priests around him. And I don't think it's at all true that Joyce in his work is anxious to uh, run down priests. He does have his characters fearing the priests. The Jesuits in his work are obviously monstrous caricatures because that's the way Stephen saw them, and that fits fine. But it's obvious also that they are caricatures. That is to say, Joyce recognized in his work that these priests had a magnificent aim, namely, to bring divine life to uh, communicants, to those who came to them for help and learning. And I, uh, I think this needs to be stressed a bit more, this aspect of his respect and even really for his love of the priestly work. The image of the priesthood. Image and symbol were two words that have kept recurring through the symposium. And on Tuesday last, there was a full-dress discussion on the nature of symbolism in Joyce's work. Now, one of the briefest but most sensible contributions to, the dis to this discussion was made by Bob O'Driscoll, who lectures in English in Toronto. Uh, well, symbolism is not something you work out in your own little room, uh, reading your own interpretations into something that doesn't exist. Symbolism is a movement in literature. Yeats says it was born in 
in in a, in a mood in the wine cup of Edgar Allan Poe. It came over to Charles Baudelaire. It came over to England with the Pre-Raphaelites. Went back again to France and returned to England through the person of Arthur Simmons. As far as I see, there are three ways. Of, it may be arbitrary, but there are three ways of looking at the world. There is a transcendental approach, which suggests that matter. And there are transcendental aspects in Joyce's work. The matter is essentially evil. Uh, it's a satanic hindrance separating man from the truth of the divine world. That is one way of looking at the world. Another way is believing that, and I think this is true perhaps of the North American continent to some extent, that matter is the only reality, that we only uh, can know what we perceive through our five senses, that the limited life of the body is, 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 is the only thing. Now, another approach, which, which, which is the symbolic approach, suggests that matter, that man, that the universe, that nature, is the means by which a spiritual essence becomes visible to mortal eyes. The body is not looked upon as the only reality, but is looked upon as the way in which a mood or an essence becomes visible. And if this approach is used, you look inwards rather than outwards. You look to the Christ embodied in your own breast rather than to some external will, uh, no matter how divine it is. Now, it seems to me that this is behind Joyce's theory of epiphanies and his theory of the stream of consciousness technique. Because if you look inwards rather than outwards, you believe that everything in the universe has its own soul, has its own individuating essence, its own rhythm, its own harmony. Um, and Joyce's theory of epiphanies is, is built on the thing that, um, that everything in the universe is capable, has its own soul, which is revealed suddenly and miraculously to the artist in the moment of epiphany. You remember the uh, part at the end of Stephen Hero when Stephen is talking to Cranley and he looks up at the clock. Even a dumb, mechanically created thing like the ballast office clock is capable of epiphany. And the other point uh, I would like to make, this of course leads to the stream of consciousness technique. If everybody has their own accent, if every soul is individual and different, then the artist can capture in his, his work the individual accent, the rhythm, the harmony of each thing in the universe, and this is what Joyce does in, in, in his work. Um, the other point about it is that form and form and spirit, the form embodies spirit, that the two are essential. And you have this symbolic approach brought out in Yeats's plays, for example, where the absurd body, the absurd material world, uh, the absurd, you get the absurdity of the material form and also the thirst for the perfection. In other words, you get man's vulnerability as well as his vision, which is what you get with Joyce, too. His frailty as well as his thirst for perfection. His frailty, his thirst for perfection. The degree of importance of biographical evidence has been one of the main talking points of the Joyce Symposium to the question, what is it to us how the poet lived? Darcy O'Brien of Pomona College, California, brings a rather positive answer. I think that, that one of the things that, that uh, becomes apparent if we look at Joyce's biography and his correspondence is that although he had a lot of 
different purposes in mind in writing, and he must have had a lot of different reasons for putting pen to paper. Uh, one of the things that he was doing was examining himself, and in that sense, uh, his works are very confessional. And although he left the church, I think he went on confessing. Uh, and uh, just to take a specific example, you have a, the, the, the Joyce's most famous character, Leopold Bloom, who bears no superficial resemblances to the author, to his creator. Um, and you have Leopold Bloom leading a very peculiar sexual wa uh, life. He's a, a cuckold. Um, he uh, engages in all kinds of sadomasochistic fantasies. Uh, he delights in the idea of birching and things of this kind. But um, if we look into Joyce's life and his letters, particularly a, a correspondence which is only partially published between Joyce and his wife Nora, we find that, uh, that Joyce himself was tortured by certain perverse uh, longings, perverse desires. He was very worried about these. And uh, what he did was to, to parody them, to make a comic sport out of them in his portrait of Bloom. This isn't to say that he's not very sympathetic with Bloom. He certainly is, because Bloom is a partial portrait of the artist himself. But uh, I think this is one of the ways that Joyce came to terms with himself. He, um, he gave us uh, Leopold Bloom, who is, uh, you might say, the secret James Joyce. And by the time you get to Finnegan's Wake, he's much more explicit about these things in one sense, except it's all hidden behind very elaborate punning and uh, all kinds of uh, obscure references, which are dif difficult to ferret out. But there are passages, um, for example, in, in the portrait of Shem, in, when he, in which he says Shem was, was fond of the boot, uh, in which he's alluding to the same kind of perverse longings that he gave to Bloom. But he's doing it in a more, still more explicit way. Now, not everybody would agree with you in this reading. No. Uh, two things. First of all, not everybody certainly agrees that Bloom is a comic portrait at all. Uh, there are some, uh, some people who have written on Bloom uh, uh, say that he is the embodiment of, uh, of all um, proper human values, a pacifist, a humanist, and these, this sort of thing. Um, and so you, you, I suppose no agreement can be had uh, unless we agree to begin with that Bloom is a comic figure and that Ulysses is a satiric book. I think this is apparent to Irishmen more than it is to, well, for example, Americans. Uh, but anyway, if we can come to that agreement, then what about the nature of this comedy? What about the origin of it? And I think we can find uh, evidence in Joyce's life to suggest uh, that he is giving us a self-portrait. A lot of people get very annoyed about any sort of, uh, drawing any sort of lines between a writer's life and his work. They say you should take the work on its own and not, uh, but, but to me, if you're going to say that such things as history and politics and social forces influence a writer, and just about everyone is in agreement with this, why not also the personality of the writer? Um, then th another aspect of this is, of course, whether or not th we have any faith in some of the insights of modern psychology. I do have a limited kind of faith in these. I think that there have been advances made. And uh, a study of Joyce's correspondence reveals um, um, a, a pattern which is really universal in mankind, according to uh, the insights of psychoanalysis. Um, uh, uh, probably, uh, Joyce, uh, although he left Ireland, uh, found it very difficult to wrench himself away and uh, 
found it very difficult to wrench himself away from his own mother as well as from Mother Ireland and from Mother Church and uh, never really succeeded in um, coming to grips with this completely. And from a psychological standpoint, this uh, wrenching himself away from the womb had very severe effects uh, on him. This is all very complicated, but um, that's sort of the general outline of, of, uh, of, of the things that I've come to uh, believe recently. Philip Herring of the University of Virginia, who read a paper on Joyce's politics, which attracted a good deal of attention in the press, would claim that Joyce was remarkably insensitive to political issues, that he was hardly a political animal at all. He was not particularly interested in what was going on in the world. That is, uh, he, he, he had a great love for Ireland, and, and uh, in one sense, it was his country. Um, that is, uh, it, was, it was the country he grew up in. Uh, but, but he didn't really care what was happening uh, uh, during the time of the Troubles or during the Rising. I don't know of any, any, uh, any place in his letters or, or in his biography where he's mentioned, for instance, that, that uh, he was on one side or the other during the Rising of 1916. Um, so in that sense, he, you can say that, that he's, not, he's not political. He would never have put his, his neck on the chopping block, so to speak. Uh, for for any political cause, he was he was uh, from a very early age disgusted with the with Sinn Fein, and uh, although he did have some interest at one stage, at I one know. stage uh, he was interested in the policies of Arthur Griffith and, and Sinn Fein, but it was a brief thing, and and it was uh, to some extent uh, what what Sinn Fein could do for him, you see, as a writer, because once again you have to come back to to Joyce. Uh, the egocentristic man, I mean, the character. And to some extent, the, the great tragedy of Joyce is that, is that he could never get beyond, um, uh, beyond the uh, egocentricity. In other words, uh, it, 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 um, one expects a, a writer to be a character, um, but uh, it, would, it, it would really be a lot, it would have been a, a great deal more healthy I think, if he could have assumed the mask, which one expects an artist to assume, and uh, to, to be more human on the side, that is, to, to be really in, in sympathy with, with his people and, 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 what they, what, and their aspirations. And, but, but he really gave up Ireland as a lost cause in, in 1904, and he, he made a speech uh, even uh, 15 years later in, in which he said that, that Ireland was... Uh, uh, was was hopeless. This uh, was in Trieste. That was in Trieste in about 1915, uh, and he said that uh, that no one with any self-respect stays in Ireland. That they that uh, they abandoned it as as a, a country which has been visit, had the visitation of an angered Jove, and uh, this is the way he essentially always felt. He was very rigid in his attitudes toward the church and toward toward Ireland, and he was unbending absolutely. And he, he cherished a, a private image of Ireland, which uh, was, was an unchanging one, which was uh, uh, completely formed from a very early age, which he needed in order to write his works. And uh, he didn't really keep in, in contact with uh, the changing conditions in Ireland. Again, this is a view which would not perhaps be held by all Joyce men, as we might gather from what uh, Professor McHugh had to say, and, as I think, will emerge from another speaker later on. But let's for a moment now uh, pull out one or two more plums from the many-layered Joyce cake. Uh, 
Nathan Halper of New York lectured on the Ulysses theme. He regards as a very important contribution to Joyce scholarship a book by an Irishman which was not about Joyce at all, or only marginally. Professor W.B. Stanford's study, uh, which came out about 15 years ago, on the Ulysses theme. Dr. Stanford begins with the pre-Homeric legends, continues with Homer, Virgil, Ovid, Dante, Shakespeare, all the variations of 3,000 years of our culture. And as he shows what philosophers and poets have done with the man Ulysses, which as I said, Joyce did before him, we learn things about Joyce's Ulysses, which books specifically devoted to the subject failed to do. Ulysses, Homer's Ulysses, to start with, is a universal man. He is shown as son, father, husband, commander, subordinate, companion, lover, wanderer, home man. He's shown as thinking of the future, thinking of the past, living in the present, etc. Now Joyce uh, goes even a few steps further. Whereas in the Odyssey and the Iliad, people are always talking about Ulysses and we see sides of his character. Joyce makes that and one of the plans of development and he shows different people of Dublin, everyone having a different opinion of Leopold Bloom, his Ulysses. So we thereby get a new universality. Then he showed, then after using the 3,000 years of poets and philosophers, which is something, of course, Homer could not have done, he gets an additional universality. He even goes further. Although Homer shows Ulysses in all sorts of situations which bring out the different facets of his character, and he shows them doing things in them or speaking, Joyce is able to add a new dimension because he not only is outside of the universal man, he goes the full gamut, he's inside the universal man also with his so-called stream of consciousness and the nightmare visions of the Circe episode. Then he even goes a step further. For his universal man, he uses every single style that he can think of. So for the universal man, he has a universality of style. Now there is the question of, in what sense, Bloom is Ulysses of Homer. In what sense, Bloom is an everyman, because he, see, he does not seem a typical man at all, and he doesn't even seem a typical Dubliner. But first place, as uh, Mr. Stanford, Dr. Stanford points out, Ulysses in the Iliad and Odyssey is not shown as a typical Greek, although he's the universal Greek. And the point is something like, well, there are two points. One is, there's the metaphor, in the sense that he, the others feel he's an alien. There's the metaphor that every man is an alien. And Joyce goes one step further in his later Finnegan's Wake, where the protagonist there, Earwicker, is not only partly an alien, but he lives in Chapel Hizzet, which at that time was a suburb of Dublin, 
in part of the city and not part of the city. Uh, he's a stranger even while he is at home. Now, the other point is about his being atypical is one that Mr. Dr. Stanford also makes about Ulysses or Homer's Odysseus. I think that Shaw, another Dubliner somewhere, tells a story that a doctor examined his eyes and said, why, this is incredible, very strange. And he said, was rather terrified and said, what? And the doctor said, your eyes are normal, a very unusual situation. Now, Bloom, in one sense, is that sort of, of a man. That is, he's shown as a man who is intelligent the way Ulysses is. Now, that's a very unusual situation. He is shown as prudent. He is shown as having compassion, as being considerate. Also, all very unusual things. But these are the very things that differentiate man from the beast. Very few men may be that way, but those are the elements that go into the words human and humane. So he's shown as the very unusual character who is mistrusted by people who have no prudence and do not deliberate. And as such, he is again the universal man. The universal man, a universal theme a classical theme, if not in a classical language. Language is always a problem with beginners. Uh, Ulysses itself is difficult enough, or parts of it are, they'll say. But Finnegan's Wake, well, that's a different language, a new language. Strother Purdy of Marquette would actually agree with them and would suggest that this different language may have its own grammar and syntax. Well, I think it is true. Uh, it is definitely a different language. Uh, and I tend to exaggerate its difference from, or stress its difference from English, compared to uh, most other people and uh, scholars of far greater ability than myself who have worked on it. However, I don't think the fact that it is different means that uh, it is necessarily less comprehensible than, say, Ulysses is. Uh, if you approach Finnegan's Wake according to the way it's put together, I think you can read it uh, with certainly as much enjoyment and perhaps finally as much comprehension as you can read Ulysses. Uh, it finally is a more enjoyable book than Ulysses, I, I believe. There's much more humor in it than there is in Ulysses. Now, a lot of people, I think, or some people anyway, find their way out of the dilemma by saying, you know, it's great music. Let it just flow over you. Uh, that's true, and certainly by reading it that way, particularly if you are an Irish reader, and if you read it aloud, as Joyce did read passages of it, uh, you pick up probably almost all of the parts of Finnegan's Wake that are reported Irish speech. As in Ulysses, there's a great deal of conversation of people standing around in a pub, calling for more drinks, uh, having a bit too much, falling under the tables, and so forth. Uh, so that's all there. And uh, I think you can get that uh, in this way of reading you described, letting it flow over you, if you read it aloud, or if you listen to someone reading it aloud. Uh, however, there's so much more to Finnegan's Wake than that, uh, what we might call, dialect part. So much of the language is simply not in any kind of sentence form that uh, English or... Uh, Irish English speakers uh, employ. Well then, the obvious question is, has it a form of its own? Has it a, 
a logical structure of its own. Well, that I believe it does, and uh, this is the viewpoint I'm uh, upholding at this conference. Uh, many people uh, of a great deal more experience with Finnegan's Wake than I have would not agree. They feel it's built out of English, and uh, it's hard to deny. Joyce spoke English after all, and he worked from this viewpoint. Uh, but I think finally Joyce developed what some linguists call a meta-language, a kind of language, um, well, that his contemporaries called a language beyond languages. They got very excited when Finnegan's Wake was being written. You mean meta-language, like metaphysics to physics, meta-language? Yes, yeah. yes, really. And uh, many of the people who knew Joyce and wrote uh, while the wake was being written used rather impressionistic uh, terms and uh, said Finnegan's Wake is in a new language. Well, I don't quite mean it in that sense. Uh, it's not something that is apart from any human speech, but um, it is a very peculiar and finally individually Joycean thing. This is what makes Finnegan's Wake uh, so entirely fascinating, I believe, that uh, this man was such an individual genius, he finally did a book produced a book which is entirely, almost entirely individual, even in the way the uh, language is constructed. Now you, uh, in your paper, uh, seem to be suggesting a way towards a grammar of this language. Yes. Um, I'm not sure to what extent this will speed reading. Uh, there is now uh, a great deal of commentary written that uh, explains words in the wake and different passages in the wake. In fact, uh, Dublin is now filled with most of the people who have written this kind of commentary. And if you work with that, you can certainly get the meaning of a great number of its passages that they've carefully constructed. However, I think that um, the kind of thing I'm attempting to start now will finally prove um, a better approach to uh, the individuality of Finnegan's Way. What's the difference between you and them? Well, that they are attempting to translate it. They are, in effect, saying, I don't want to magnify this. <laughs> <laughs> they are attempt, uh, and many people who write about the language are saying, well, now, there must be a set of English sentences to which the wake sentences correspond. So if we could figure out what these words mean, then we can more or less give you rewrite Finnegan's Wake. Now, this is what Anthony Burgess has done in his shorter Finnegan's Wake. He's uh, essentially said, well, I'll translate it for you, and this will help the general reader. What I am asking the reader, I suppose, is finally to join Joyce, uh, get very close to Joyce as he wrote it. Uh, Joyce said that I need a new language to write it. And um, I don't think it's sufficiently realized that uh, he essentially did write it in a new language. Well, that means that uh, you can start with English, certainly, and a great deal of the wake is in ordinary English. But then you somehow have to build your, your uh, reading capacity into Joyce's peculiar talents. I think actually a lot of people, most people do this unconsciously with Ulysses. But Ulysses is closer to ordinary English, so you do it without realizing it. You get so that you handle Leopold Bloom's thoughts without stopping to think, well, something is wrong here, this is too difficult to read. You just easily move into Leopold Bloom's thoughts. I think the same thing is possible finally with Finnegan's Way. Now to another part of the forest. A possible source or tributary to the Finnegan's Wake stream was suggested 
by Mrs. Mackie Jarrell of Connecticut College, who spoke about a nearly and Olivia Plurabel, an 18th century poem in heroic couplets called The Liffey, a fable, published in Dublin in 1726. I was struck when I first saw it some years ago by how many similarities there are to Joyce's Anne Olivia. And I, although I've not been able to find out a great deal about it, I'm still rather convinced that at least there's a possibility that Joyce knew and used it. Its, it's fable is a fairly familiar kind of thing based primarily on Ovid's Daphne story. In it, uh, the, author, the author of the poem has two principles, a river and a mountain. Uh, originally, the river is a nymph whose name is Livia. One, of course, thinks of Anna Livia. And a Wicklow mountain called, he says in his introduction, by an old legend, the widow's son. The that mountain I've not been able to locate on a map, but I, have, I, I still have some hopes of, of finding it. Uh, in the fable, the mountain god, that is, the widow's son, falls in love with the nymph Livia, pursues her, and she takes a very wandering, meandering course to the sea, calling on her father Neptune as she does so. You will remember that this is quite comparable with what Joyce does. Also, Anna Livia, of course, follows a very, a very meandering course, and she, she has several encounters, which, which I think Joyce might possibly be, be parodying. He might be parodying this poem. Now, there is no evidence that he did read it. No, I have no evidence. He could have found it, you know, on the, in those shops in the Keys. He could have found it in, well, it's, it's rather a rare book, of course. He could have found it in the National Library. I found it myself in the Gilbert Library, that splendid collection. I've seen it in several other places since at Yale and the Bradshaw Collection at Cambridge. I don't really know how many copies are still extant. Uh, we know anything about the author? Uh, D.J. O'Donohue and Douglas Hyde in their Gilbert Library catalog attribute it to, to George Ogle, the older George Ogle, the father of the, of the songwriter and statesman. Uh, there's no real proof of this, but the evidence does support the belief that it was probably by Ogle. He did other things like that. And are there any verbal clues to that in Finnegan's work? Not a single one. I looked hard. I was hopeful that there might be some sort of sign in that, but no, not a, not a one. There is, however, there is a uh, a widow's son in in the Anna Olivia chapter, and uh, just exactly what that widow's son is doing there, it's hard to say. It might be a sign, might be a clue. Now, you did say when you were speaking that. Uh, the, this Latinization of Liffey into, or Liffe into Livia, you felt, uh, well, this was the only case of it outside of Finnegan's Wake. Yes, I expected to find, to find numerous uh, Livias, but not a single one did I find, and I looked very hard. I searched all, all I could, but so, not a one. So that may be a clue. Mm -hmm. Yes, it might. Speculation, disputation, thesis and antithesis all pressed down and flowing over at the Second International Joyce Symposium. I, I talked to Fritz Sein of Switzerland, one of the chairmen, and Clive Hart of Australia about the symposium in general. Uh, Fritz Sein 
stressed that the first one, held two years ago, was by way of experiment. The participants did think it a success, a qualified success, most of us. The Dublin newspapers didn't always think so. Uh, and we thought it might be worth repeating, and so we did repeat it, trying to make it less improvised than last time. And perhaps it is now a little bit better organized, but it still has this air of improvisation about it. In numbers, how do the two compare? Uh, we have at least twice the number, almost three times, actually. It's not easy to say how many people are here, because there are quite a lot of people on the fringes, like journalists and people who came over for the symposium and are looking in, but are not actually part of it. Now, how do you see its, uh, its aim? How do you see its raison d'etre, Clifford? It seems to me that uh, symposia of this sort are valuable insofar as they enable scholars to communicate on levels which are slightly different from the levels of communication available through publications and through private correspondence. There's a sort of scholarly stimulation which happens when people get together and listen to papers with discussion following. Uh, this stimulation leads to a more excited sort of uh, insight into the details which have been offered for discussion under the various headings of the panels that we've organized. And when this works well, as it, I think, has often done so far in this conference, it works uh, in ways which are irreplaceable by other means. This is the sort of thing I'd like to see conferences working for. That, in fact, insights may very well develop out of the very confrontation of people and the very meeting of minds. They do. I think ideas. conferences ought to be creative in this sense, and really creative. Uh, and, of course, a, a minor lesser creative aim is the uh, private communication which takes place between colleagues uh, before and after papers. And this sort of uh, private communication often leads to uh, not only increased personal insight on the part of the scholars concerned, but to uh, the planning of future research along various uh, lines which my, I myself, for example, have uh, planned one or two small publications. And going on past experience, I should say that at least 50% of these plans will in fact come to fruition. And of course this, I suppose, is particularly important in uh, Joyce studies where one sees already that there are many different approaches and even sub-disciplines involved. You know, there's perhaps a psychoanalytic approach, you know, the approach of a, of a, a lexicographer or, a, you know, sort of... Yes, indeed. Of course, we're always aware, even before we get together, that there are many differences of approach and that there are difficulties of communication because of these differences. But uh, getting together in the conference, especially in such large numbers as we have here, really highlights the extraordinary differences of approach which we have and the extraordinary difficulties of bridging the gaps between us. Uh, the, the fact that we begin to recognize these gaps makes it mm. possible to do something about it in the future. Now, do you see any actual clear aims and directions for the future, Fritz? Uh, I think we've learned a bit. Well, actually, the aims of, if there's any conscious aim in this, or if we all have the same aim, which I'm sure we don't have, I think they're often misunderstood. If we are judged by the average uh, quality of the paper's rate, uh, you might say it's not always worth coming all the way to Dublin. But I think our main object is to provide opportunities for an exchange of ideas. And the results of the symposium, I think, will come out 
later due to context to, to well, people in point of view that wouldn't meet otherwise. Uh, as to, uh, this time when we had a few artists along and uh, this would probably lead to, to something. It's also quite interesting here in this respect to compare not only the various approved approaches to Joyce, which we know, but also, as I can see it from Switzerland especially, the, what I might call al almost the various scholarly characteristics of particular nations. Uh, we have found out that there's one big difference, an essential one, between American scholarship and European one, which I think is much mm, is different. And of course, I can easily see that uh, even in Europe, every uh, nation has its own particular scholars. They expect something different. They have different evaluations and different approaches. Unfortunately, as I found out, it scholars and people tend to meet themselves here and pursue their same own little aims and have the parties with the same people they could have parties with in New York and things like that, which is really a pity because until you really get to know these people then probably our time has run out. May I come in here at this point? It seems to me that one of the most interesting aspects of this particular issue is the differences of response of scholars to Dublin itself and I suppose in, in the case of conferences held elsewhere to other cities with which Joyce was connected. Some of us are most concerned to get the feel of the city, the feel of the walking around the streets, um, feeling the dust on our souls, um, and uh, looking in at the bars, um, looking at the city from all points of view, looking at it as Joyce might have looked at it. Others, and no doubt they uh, have their reasons, are concerned to be here only to meet fellow scholars, not to look at the city at all, not to feel what the city is like. Um, these differences are very clearly reflected in the writings of the scholars concerned. And perhaps uh, Dublin itself is aware of this. Yes. In fact, there's a certain danger that things fall into a pattern. I mean that the Joycean scholar, and especially the transatlantic scholar, is something of a ridiculous figure by definition in Dublin. He is uh, a Johnsonian humour, I, I would say. And on the other hand, the, we have certain prejudices about the Irish attitude, if there's such a thing, and there is such a thing, though it is less so, or it was evidently less so than last time. And on the whole, the reception and the response and the reactions have been almost positive in certain respects. But surely you know that every Irishman is an attitude. Yes, of course, of course, and some even more so. John Garvin, Dwayne of Dublin Joyce men, finds the confrontation of native sons and visiting firemen very valuable. I think that uh, we have a lot to learn from the foreign commentators in as much as uh, they uh, base their examination of the Joyce material on uh, universal cosmopolitan themes. But, uh, of course, uh, while we admit that Joyce did everything he could to make his treatment uh, cosmopolitan and use the literatures of the world for that purpose, he remains an Irish uh, writer. 
and his themes are basically uh, Irish, relating to Ireland and primarily to Dublin. Uh, his accents uh, are English, with a treatment uh, designed to bring in all the other European languages and the language of the gypsies, and, but the, the whole thing is basically Anglo-Irish brogue, as genuinely Anglo-Irish as sings play-by of the Western world. Joyce, was he conscious himself of this? Was he, did he consciously care about the matter of Ireland? He couldn't escape from Ireland and from the material which was with him from his childhood, uh, the streets of Dublin, the accents of the people. And these were what he used uh, uh, right through the whole of his books. He couldn't escape from it. And uh, when, he asked, uh, when he was asked, would he ever go back to Dublin, he said, have I ever left it? This was 20 or 30 years after he left Ireland. And although he pretended to... Not to, he pretended to be ignorant of the Irish language and he pretended to take no interest in events in Ireland. Nevertheless, under the universality of his writing, you can detect all the troubles that were going on in Ireland from 1916 to 1922. For example, when Irish eyes of welcome were smiling daggers down their backs, when the wrath, voice and blows met the noir, blank and rogues, and the grim, white and cold met the black, fighting tans, categorically unimperative by the maxims, a rank funk getting the better of him, the scut in a bad fit of pyjamas fled like a leveret for his bare lives, Kuski cocked himself up tight in his ink battle house. Uh, that refers to the accusation that he had deserted Ireland in the time when Ireland was most in need of uh, intellectual men and fighting men to contend with the British Empire, and uh, he candidly admits that a, a, a rank uh, fright got the better of him and that he kept away from all the troubles. Elsewhere he says that uh, he became a far soonerite and ran away with himself, saying that he would far sooner muddle through the mess of lentils in Europe than meddle with Ireland's split little pea. There Ireland's split little pea means the green island divided into uh, two countries, north and south. And elsewhere, he, ref he refers to a people bound and sold at a price partitional of 26 and 6. Desmond Fitzgerald, sometime about 1922 or 23 in Paris, asked him would he return to Ireland and uh, or at least pay a visit. And he makes a great deal of this in his letters to Miss uh, Weaver and other correspondents of his. But he also brings it into his writing between 1923 and 1932 and asks, calling himself his own Shem, as he called himself for Seamus or James, is Shem to return to Ireland. But he has an enormous uh, opposite number in Ireland who is ready to deal with him if he does come back, and that is Sean. Sean, as spokesman for the people at home, will take no responsibility for him. And Sean says, am I my bloater's kipper? He will come over at his pearl, he says. Sherlock is larking for him. That's not Sherlock Holmes. It's Larkin Sherlock, the high sheriff, who would preside at the hanging of Shem when he returned to Ireland because, naturally, he would come over with matricidal purposes to set the Liffey on fire. And as the Liffey is the mother of both Shem and Sean, Sean would see that Shem was executed for trying to set the Liffey on fire. And, of course, even if he didn't come back to Ireland, his home life, wherever it was, was very much Irish. Oh, of course it was. He had uh, a Galway accent in the house with him, in the person of Nora Barnacle, his wife. Uh, 
he in fact used her name, Barnettle, to associate himself and his adventures with the adventures of the wild geese who left Ireland after the defeat at the Boyne and Limerick. And uh, she was a very loyal woman in her long years of living with him, and uh, this uh, upheld uh, his father's prophecy when he heard that her name was Barnacle, he said, uh, she'll surely stick to him. There is a rustic belief that uh, Barnacle has become wild geese, and that justified Joyce in associating himself with the, the historic wild geese. Tomorrow, Bloomsday, the Joyce Symposium ends. The final speaker will be Leslie Fiedler, distinguished American critic and teacher, but one who has never taught or written about Joyce and confesses to some embarrassment on speaking publicly on a subject which has always been personal and close to his heart and mind. Uh, my connection goes back a long way. When I was 17 years old, which was in 1934, exactly the year in which Joyce was first officially published in the United States after the famous Judge Woolsey decision, uh, I managed to talk an aunt of mine who would have been scandalized if she knew what she was doing to giving me a copy of Ulysses as a graduation present from high school. And uh, I've been reading and rereading Ulysses ever since. Uh, Ulysses is the book which means the most to me, though once uh, during World War II when I was spending some 60 days afloat in the Central Pacific off the island of Iwo Jima, I thought this was a proper moment to read Finnegan's Wake. And I did Finnegan's Wake um, in those 60 days at sea. I was at sea in many senses of the word uh, all the way through for, the, for that, but it, it, it seems to me the ideal way. And I, yeah, I, I really, you know, now that I've come here and I'm about to talk about Joyce, I'm puzzled myself as, as, as to why uh, I haven't been willing to speak about him in public before. Perhaps in a way he means too much to me. I, I think as a boy he was my first model or prototype of what it meant to be an artist. And uh, his slogan, you know, became in many ways my own slogan. So there was something imitative about it. On the other hand, it perhaps seems strange that a, you know, a boy from a Jewish family living in Newark, New Jersey should find in an Irish exiled writer, a kind of model for himself, but uh, those phrases of his have rung in my head ever since, uh, you know, exile, silence, and cunning, and especially the known serviam business, you know, I will not obey, I will not submit, which translated into American known serviam, I think comes out as best as I would prefer not to, which is what Bartleby the Scrivener says in a great story uh, by Herman Melville. One of my own later books is called No in Thunder. Uh, it's a title which I've actually taken once more uh, from Melville, but in a certain way, I think Joyce first taught me uh, that the, the, the dearest and most precious and dangerous and difficult and beautiful and rewarding thing a man can do is to begin by saying no, not to somebody else's pieties, but to his own deepest pieties, to the nationalism which is his nationalism, to the religion which is his religion, to the family which is his family. So that, you know, though those things can't in a fundamental sense be, this, you know, I think I learned from Joyce, that in a, though those things can't in a fundamental way be denied uh, insofar as they're part of your body and blood and bones, 
they have to be denied insofar as they're platitudes floating around in your head or things out of, of public speech and so forth, and that one can't begin to belong in any true way uh, to his own country, to his own race, to his own religion until he's made that public act of denial and then recaptures the whole thing again in the imagination, both the moment of denial and, and, and that which is denied. And often in my own lifetime, at, at moments when I've forgotten what the whole enterprise of being a writer is about, I go back again, you know, uh, to James Joyce uh, to find my models. There have been other things that have possessed my mind since, more native things. I mean, the figure of Huckleberry Finn, which I spent a good deal of my public life writing about, for instance, and the character of Ishmael uh, in Moby Dick, but in, in a way, the prototype of them all for me, my, my, my first clue to the kind of imaginary creature which an artist, in whose image an artist tries to recreate himself, came out of, uh, out of Stephen. Uh, now that I've, uh, I'm no longer at a position where I can think of myself any longer as a young artist or a beginning artist or a starting out artist or somebody in the process of creating the conscience of his race by creating his own new conscience for himself. Uh, I think I go back to, uh, to Joyce and I find more and more intriguing the figure of Bloom, uh, which, who is the portrait of a kind of artist after all, an advertising man, an artist in words, uh, you know, uh, 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 not, a, not a pathetic um, character involving self-pity or self-celebration, but a, an immensely comic character, which perhaps is the best way in which a middle-aged man can look at himself at the end of his journey. I think that will do very well indeed as a last thought for Bloom's Eve, as we suppose our ideas one, two, three, in the ardor of our Joyce. <laughs>